Hello, welcome back. This is episode... 62! Episode 62 of True Crime B&B, and I am Beth. I'm Bailey. I'm the mom! I'm the daughter. Yes. <laughs> well, we haven't said that in a while, just in That's case true. somebody's tuning in in the middle, and they're like, who are these stupid people? Yeah, we've been friends for 27 years. <laughs> so. So we are in our opposite roles today. It's Bizarro World, mm-hmm. and I am the bad guy today. I'm going to sit back and listen. Let's get into my bad story. Okay. Susan Schwartz was strong, kind, loving, and always a good friend. She was born to Henry, and I couldn't find her mother's name in 1955 in Snohomish County, Washington, and she grew up in the Seattle area. She was super close with her family, and her father said she was absolutely best of friends with her younger brother. So she had two siblings, but she was super, super close with her brother. And they also had another sister that they were super affectionate with, and all three of the siblings graduated from Bothell High School. After graduation, Susan went about the normal process of growing up and becoming an adult. She moved out, she got her own place, but she stayed in touch with all the people that she loved. She also steadfastly maintained her friendships that she had had for years. At the age of 24, Susan's best friend from high school told her an awful secret. The friend's name isn't part of the public record, so we're just going to call her Mary. Okay. Mary confided to Susan that Mary's husband had always been abusive to her and she was terrified that either she or her young son were going to eventually get really hurt. And she had tried to leave him, but he still knew how to find her. And also, she knew he was cruel and easily enraged, so she was afraid that if she stuck around, he was going to eventually kill her. So when Susan found out that Mary and her little boy were in this dangerous situation, she decided she wanted to try to help them get away from this guy. Susan did some homework and made some arrangements and helped Mary to secretly move into a women's shelter. By being in the shelter, Mary had both some security and more resources to make arrangements so that she could eventually get out of state with her son, away from this abuser who tormented her. And they succeeded in this plan. In 1978, Mary managed to escape to Minnesota with her two-year-old and get away from her husband. They were safe there, and her husband was none the wiser. He didn't know where they were and he didn't know how they made these arrangements. Except that in 1979, Mary had returned to Washington for a visit. She was considering whether her life would be easier with her husband's support, and maybe she should get back together with him. Because as we all know, sometimes it's easier to face a known enemy than to confront an unknown alone. Yeah. I I mean, I I understand, but... You see it through rose, the past through rose-colored glasses, so... Yeah, because at that point, she was 24. Mm-hmm. She had a two-year-old. She didn't really have a good way to support herself. She was basically on the run. She knew that if he found her, he would hurt her. Mm-hmm. So if she came back on her own, maybe he would not be so angry. Aggressive, yes. Yeah. So Susan listened carefully to everything Mary had to say and reminded her that her husband... A man named Gregory Johnson, who was two years older than the two of them, was awful and dangerous, and Mary was much safer out of state without him. Plus, he was just an unlikable guy. Mary could do much better. And Susan reminded Mary that he also had a younger girlfriend. The girlfriend was more or less a child. She had met Gregory when she was 17, but she was now 18, and already was finding it was very hard to get away from him. Gregory frightened this girlfriend, whose name is also not part of the public record, so I'm calling her Linda, just as much as he frightened Mary. 
But regardless of Gregory Johnson having this teenage girlfriend, and despite this nightmare that he had put his estranged wife Mary through, he was, unsurprisingly, furious that Mary would have the nerve to run away from him. Because men like this think that the sun rises and sets on what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's that hypocrisy of, you've moved on, but I'm not allowed to go move on in my life? Exactly. Fuck you. <laughs> well, he, he was going to have the girlfriend whether Mary left him or not. Right. Because he's allowed to do anything he wants, and she's not allowed to have any kind of life of her own. But God forbid you embarrass me by having somebody else exactly. in your life. Exactly. Yeah. So as I had mentioned, Linda, the girlfriend, had turned 18 while she was under the control of Johnson. And it was control. It wasn't a nice, loving relationship. When she met Johnson, it had been nine months after the death of her father, and her family had been lost in the world without him. So she latched on to this older guy who was acting like he was going to take care of her. Johnson got Linda to do and say things that he knew would push her mother away. And once she and her mother were estranged, Johnson moved quickly to fill the void. She moved in with him, feeling she had nowhere else to go now that she wasn't speaking to her family. He was violent with her. His friends would come over and he would sex traffic her to them. Her life was a hell. She was terrified. She was really young. She had no resources and she had no idea how she could possibly get out of this without getting murdered. She was a victim, just like his wife Mary had been. Johnson himself was involved in all kinds of criminal activity. I mean, that's not a surprise coming from a guy like this. Yeah. One of the ways that he controlled Linda was to make her complicit by taking her along on his break-ins, making her act as his lookout. He knew he could terrify her into holding her tongue, and he knew that she would never have the nerve to turn him in. He often threatened her that if she ever went against him or turned him in or spoke to anyone about him, he would not only kill her, but he would kill her loved ones too. So she was estranged from her family, but he was still holding that over her head. He's not, I hate to say it, but especially in that time period, he's not wrong. A lot of women, if you go to the police and say, this man is doing this to me, they don't do anything. And then now you're stuck with that man still. So why would she? Why would she ever take the risk? That's right. In the 70s, to be smacked around by your husband, to be punched in the face, to be forcibly pushed down and forced to have sex with your husband Mm -hmm. that was not really considered criminal back in the 70s it was like well why didn't you just do what he asked you to yeah this wouldn't have happened exactly you should have just done what he said Mm -hmm. she's going along with this because she doesn't feel that she has a choice johnson had a long history of robbery and drug convictions and over and over again Johnson had also coerced Linda to go along on his break-ins, assaults, drug deals, assuming that all of his dirty little secrets were safe because there was no way she was ever going to go against him. Mm -hmm. So on October 22nd, 1979, when Johnson told Linda to get ready to go, he said they were going to someone's house to pick up drugs and get some money from someone who owed him. So she didn't argue. She didn't waste any time. She knew the consequences of not obeying, so she did what she was told. Mm Mm-hmm. They arrived at a quiet little house. He went inside, stalked through the house, and found his way to the bathroom. He barged into the bathroom, grabbed a woman out of the shower, and pistol-whipped her, forced her down onto the bathroom floor. The woman was crying and begging for him not to kill her. He tied her hands behind her back, and she begged some more. He then shot the woman in the head, and just then he noticed that Linda had come into the doorway and was watching him. He shot the woman a second time in the head and snarled, It's that easy. This is what happens to people who fuck with my life. And then ordered for Linda to check the woman for her pulse. Oh, that 
Poor girl. As she found no pulse, Johnson then sent Linda back out to the car and said he was going to clean up because now he's got blood on him. Mm-hmm. Linda didn't know this woman's name. She didn't know the address of this house. And she was shocked and she was traumatized. Linda wondered what that woman could have possibly done for Johnson to want to kill her in such a brutal way. But then again, she knew it didn't take much for him to find an excuse mm-hmm. to be just horribly cruel. In the aftermath of this murder, Linda realized whose murder she had been witness to. It had been Susan Schwartz, who had helped Johnson's wife escape with his toddler son. For many years, Linda would be too afraid to speak out about what she had witnessed. She had been beaten, she had been abused, threatened, and she had a clear memory of Johnson shooting a woman in the head and then saying it was because she had fucked with his life. Obviously, he was saying he would do the same thing to her if she talked. Right. So, for that same many years, Susan Schwartz's family suffered in the unbearable agony of not knowing who had killed her or why. I mean, she was loved by everybody. They had no idea why someone would want to do this to her. Of course. The investigators had made lists of all the people in Susan's life back when the event happened. Mm -hmm. And Susan's friend Mary, as well as Gregory Johnson, as her still legal husband at that point, had been on that list. But so was Linda because she had been living with Johnson at that time. So the whole list of people had been noted back then, but not everybody had been questioned. Mm -hmm. Johnson had told detectives that he had been fishing with his brother on the day of Susan's murder. After the case had gone cold and detectives started looking at it again seven years later, in 1986, they questioned Johnson again. He was being questioned this time while he was in prison serving time for robbery. His alibi in 1979 had never been able to be confirmed, so they basically questioned him again to see what he would say this time, if it was the same story. They asked what he had been doing the day that Susan was killed, and this time, as suspected, he changed his story, saying that he had dropped his brother and another man off outside of an unknown house. This story implied that he had been making an alibi for his brother, and not the other way around. So he's literally throwing his brother under the bus. Basically, yeah. Gregory Johnson was actually trying to implicate his own brother in the murder. Mm. But again, there was no hard evidence that could tie either of these men to the crime, and still, so no one was charged. Mm. Over the years, the Schwartz family struggled, despairing that Susan was never going to get justice for what had happened to her. As were many jurisdictions across USA at about this time in 2007, Snohomish County decided to put their cold cases on the cold case playing card deck that was to be distributed in jails and correctional facilities for inmates to use. The goal of these cards is that an inmate never previously involved in the case might know something. They might have heard something. They might have seen something. Susan Schwartz was the queen of hearts in the deck of cold case cards. And in 2010, the two detectives who were still assigned to Susan's case received a tip. An inmate had told them that Gregory Johnson had admitted to killing Susan. Around the same time, detectives had retesting of physical evidence, hoping to get something new based on more modern advancements of forensic technology. So suddenly, the case started waking up from a long, long sleep. With a direction to look in, detectives poured over the cold case files, looking for people who had not been questioned or who might have shed light on Johnson relative to the jailhouse tip that they had received. And upon further examination of the files, the detectives found the name of 18-year-old Linda, who at that time had been involved with Johnson and who was listed in the files but had never been questioned. And even if she had been at that time, 
she likely would have lied because of how terrified she was of Johnson. Yeah. So it might be better that they didn't question her back then. Yeah, and understandably. Sure, of course. He had told her that the police would suspect she'd been part of the killing. She also knew he wouldn't hesitate to kill her still grieving mother. So as the years went by, Linda came around to a piece that if detectives came to her door, that she would answer their questions. And in time, Linda had managed to leave Johnson behind, left her old life behind, made new friends. She had gone to school and became a nurse. She had become a mother. But even after he wasn't in her life anymore, he still wanted her to remember he wasn't ever going to be truly gone because she knew secrets about him and he wanted to make sure that she was still intimidated. One time, Johnson caught her by phone at her mother's house after he had been released from one of his robbery sentences. He just wanted a reminder that he could still find her if he needed to. So when detectives finally showed up at her door in 2011, Linda was still fearful, but she knew that Susan Schwartz's family deserved to get answers. They had waited over three decades for them, and she knew she finally had to do the right thing, to do right by Susan. So Linda told the detectives what she knew. She told them she had witnessed the murder, that she would testify, and that she wished she had been able to do it 32 years earlier. But once the prosecution had turned the corner with this case, Gregory Johnson decided to plead guilty to second-degree murder of Susan M. Schwartz. And Linda said that after getting the secret off of her chest, she felt an immense sense of relief. Gregory Duane Johnson was sentenced to a minimum of 24 years in prison. And since he was 58 at the time of sentencing in 2011, he is now 69 years old and still incarcerated at Coyote Ridge Correction Center. Susan Schwartz's family finally had gotten to look her killer in the face and to know that he is unlikely to ever make it out of prison alive. Susan's father, Henry Schwartz, after being informed that his daughter's killer was in custody after all those years, acknowledged that he had had to bury the loss so deeply within himself that when other people talked about what had happened to his beautiful daughter, it only sounded like words to him. He had had to do this because it was the only way that he could even begin to get up and get through life day by day by day for 32 years. Well, of course. I'm just happy that he was still alive to see this guy go down for it. But you do have to put it into a perspective of that happened to somebody else that didn't happen to me. Otherwise, like you said, it'll just break you. Exactly. So for over 32 years... Over three decades, he had suppressed everything, trying to forget, because he could barely live with the pain. Susan's brother Gary requested to the judge that Linda's real name never be released, out of fear that she might suffer again for speaking out. Linda had already told the family that she felt she didn't do enough, but the family is grateful to her. They know she was a victim, they know she lived in fear, and they know the strength that it took for her to finally speak up. And incidentally, Susan Schwartz's case was the very first Washington State case that was solved by tips that were derived from the cold case playing cards. Interesting. But in the end, I just hope that Gregory Johnson, that shit he'll creep, mm-hmm. I hope that every day of his life in prison for the rest of his life is the day that he deserves. Yeah. Because he ruined so many lives. Well, I'm sorry that happened to Susan. She didn't deserve it. If anybody didn't deserve it, it's definitely somebody who literally was just doing the right thing. She was just trying to help her friend get out of a bad situation. Mm. So what do you have for us today? I'm going to try to do it with her on me. If I have to shove her down, then I have to shove her down. She's like laid weird, standing up on her back legs, but her front legs are laying down. And it's like, why? That doesn't seem comfortable, babe. (laughs) I 
once again, our telepathic connections when we find stories happened. Okay. Mine is also in the late 70s in the Pacific Northwest. Oh my god, you're <laughs> kidding me. That's... I'm telling you, we have a weird connection. We do. That is so wild. Yeah. Terry Gents and Avra Goldman were undergrad students at Yale University in the late 70s. Terry was from Illinois and Avra was from Massachusetts, but they both met when they got to Yale and were placed as roommates. Okay. About two years later, they had become very, very close, and they decided that for the summer after their sophomore year, they were going to make a trip together, some kind of big adventure. And in 1977, the two girls began to plan that summer together. They decided on the Transamerica Trail. Okay. So the Transamerica Trail, it was finished in the late 70s, so it was like a brand new trail all across America from Oregon to Massachusetts. Oh, okay. But it differs from the normal trails like the Appalachian Trail because it's not just a hiking trail. It's like a car trail that you can, it goes through a bunch of different parks in the United States and it also goes through a lot of major cities. So you can do the trail without it being a hiking adventure or a camping adventure. It's just one long trail all across America. I don't think I am familiar with that. I hadn't heard of it either. That's why I was like, let me just explain it. Okay, good idea. In 1976, they had just finished the Transamerica Bicycle Trail, which they added on to the regular car trail. And so the girls said, we're both really fit. We like to do things like that. Let's bike the whole area and we'll camp together slash go to wherever the sites we want to see are. Oh, we were so naive in the 70s. I know. Yikes. Yeah. The trail itself is about 4,200 miles, but there are thousands of miles of offshoot roads taking you to different historical places. If does that make sense? Day trips. Day trips, yes. This is making me think of the guy who was driving from California and disappeared in Wyoming? Wyoming. On his way to Massachusetts. Was he yeah. on that trail? Were they on that trail? No, he was more southern. This is more of from New England through the Midwest up to Pacific Northwest. They were going to start out in Oregon and then bike back to the East Coast where they were living. And okay. so they flew out in mid-June 1977. They landed in Astoria, Oregon. All right. A week into their trip, June 22nd, the two girls decided to spend the night in Klein Falls State Park, which is the east part of Oregon. And they camped along the picturesque Deschutes River. At 11.30 p.m., both girls were in their tent asleep when the sound of a car pulling up outside of their tent woke them up. At first, they weren't really concerned at all because it was a popular camping spot, but the car just remained on, and they kind of were like, whatever, we'll go back to sleep. It's probably partiers from a local town, teenagers, whatever. And so they kind of started to doze back off. Out of nowhere, things took a wild turn, though, Mm. when the truck came barreling over top of the girl's tent. Holy shit, it just drove over the top? Flat in the entire tent, both girls are laying next to each other inside. I don't like By the time the driver had hit the brakes and Terry began to realize what had just happened, she's still in a daze, you know, she comes to a little bit and she's unable to get up. And she realizes that's because she was pinned down by the chest to the ground by the tires of this truck. Oh my God. So he hit the brakes, but he stopped the vehicle on top of her. Holy shit. How is she not dead? I know. How do you have a truck sitting on top of your chest and not just immediately suffocate? On top of that, the man got out of the truck, and obviously the girls think he must be drunk, he did this an accident, now he's trying to see, assess the damage, see what he did. But he wasn't doing that. He got out of the truck carrying a hatchet. 
And he starts walking over, sees Terry is trapped under the car, and says, Okay, well, I'm going to go after the other girl who can get away from me, Avra. As he walked up to a still-dazed Avra on the ground, he began swinging, hitting her in the head with the axe a total of six times. I'm speechless. I'm speechless. It gets, goes from zero to 10,000 so fast. Yeah. One, one second there's a car idling a few feet away, and now you're in a fight for your life. Mm-hmm. After his assault on Avra, as Terry helplessly listened, trapped underneath this car and gravely injured herself, she heard the man starting to walk over to her now. He lowered the axe slowly enough. I don't think he actually did it, like, slowly, but, like, she saw it in slow motion, essentially, and she was able to catch the axe before it made contact with her. So her body parts still work. Her spine isn't broken or anything. It sounds like... Back wheel of the car, it was on her right shoulder at this point, so the left side of her body was still accessible to the man, okay. so that's where the axe came down at, and she managed to reach, reach her arms up and grab the axe okay. as it came down. Oh, wow. That's heroic. At this point, she's got a good hold of the end of the axe, the sharp end, and is begging him to leave her alone. He's not giving in, and... She just says, well, all I can really do is hold on to this and hope that he gets tired and gives up because I'm struggling too much with him. And he eventually did. So he kind of said, fuck it, and got back in his car and drove off away from the site. I have anxiety. I, I feel like I yeah. feel like I'm ready to hyperventilate. I'm, I'm the s- fact that anybody is still alive in this situation is mind boggling. I'm just imagining the pain that she... I'm sure the other girl must be passed out, at least. Mm-hmm. But the girl that's still awake and conscious and has just had a truck parked on her shoulder mm-hmm. and probably her hand is in a claw from trying to hold on to that axe. And I just... Probably in disbelief that he actually even left. And the thing that really struck me is her trapped under this car. Can you imagine this all happens, goes down... You're stuck under this car, and you know a couple feet away, your best friend is being axed in the head multiple times, and then you hear his footsteps coming towards you. Yeah. The torture. The torture, the panic, the just fear. I just can't even... Yeah. Avra, at this point, Terry looked over, realized she was completely still and unconscious on the ground, and so she realized that even though she also was really hurt, Terry was going to have to be the one to go out and find somebody to get help. So, at this point, Terry had two broken arms, both of her arms, really badly. The nurses at the hospital said they were mangled beyond belief, and that's the image that stuck with them for so long after this. A broken leg, her right collarbone was broken, several broken ribs, and both lungs had collapsed. Still, with all of that, Terry got up and walked her way to a main road in the park and flagged down a teenage couple driving by named Bill Pinhollow and Darlene Gervais. How the hell did she get up and walk anywhere with I a... With a bro- how'd she even get up off the ground, for one? She's got no arms to push herself up off the ground. Mm-hmm. She's got a broken leg. Mm-hmm. Her arms are just swinging there because her collarbone is broken. And Both of her lungs are collapsed. She can't even get a good breath of air. And she still saw her best friend. She's the she fucking Terminator. Help. I know, and... Th- that makes it even more impressive that she caught the fucking axe in mid-swing yes. with two broken arms, a broken collarbone, with a car on top of her. And she still fought back hard enough that this guy was like, not worth it, I need to get out of here. Oh my god. Yeah, incredible. Beyond incredible. That's, mm-hmm. 
superhuman. So this teenage couple that she flagged down, Darlene and Bill, they got Terry into their car and then returned to the campsite to see what they could do for Avra, if anything. And they provided some medical assistance to her, enough to stabilize her and get her to the hospital. So she still had a heartbeat and... Yeah, she's still breathing. She, she was unconscious, I assume. Yeah, there was no, like, they couldn't get her to make any noise or anything, but she was still breathing and had a heartbeat. So they were like, all right, let's get her in the back and let's oh, go. Wow. They made it to a trauma center in Bend, Oregon, where they were also able to, at this point, contact the police. Ivra had to have an emergency nine-hour brain surgery, and after coming to, did not remember a single thing from the attack, but otherwise, she was there. She remembered who she was. She knew where she was, how she had gotten to this point. She just didn't remember how she had gotten her injuries. That's kind of amazing, considering the brain surgery in the 70s was probably... I mean, I know that they had made a lot of advancements by that point. Mm-hmm. It's not like it was 1870. But it was also not what they know how to do today. If you think about it, EMT type of medicine, just stabilizing people was pretty much... Yeah, they'd stick them in a cross the back of a station wagon. <laughs> they'd yeah. stick them in a station wagon and drive them to the hospital. Slap their face a couple times. Stay with us now. Yeah, smelling salts. Yeah. But yeah, so she came to the next day and was there but didn't remember anything. Terry, who had never lost consciousness this entire time, I mean, there were fuzzy spots where she's like, what the fuck just happened? But she was alert. She remembered almost everything, but unfortunately was not able to get a clear look at the suspect because she had been under a car. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised if she could even tell you what kind of a truck it was. Yeah, she had no idea. It was it was pitch black in the middle of the woods, you know? Oh my she couldn't really give any kind of explanation other than it was a truck and he was a young guy who was obviously very fit, and he was dressed like a cowboy. That's what I can tell you guys. So there was no one, you know, there's two kinds of camping. There's wilderness camping, and then there's lot camping, like where you bring your tent, yeah. and you they have a, a pre-made fire pit, and you park your tent, and you set it up, and it sounds like they were in the second kind. So it was a campsite, but it was a very secluded campsite where there were picnic tables, but it was more of like a type of place that people would go with their families that were locals and spend the day there and then go home. So they were the only people staying the night at this time. Or at least right in that immediate area. There probably were more people further down the road. Yeah, it's a nine acre park. So... There was nobody else nearby. (laughs) Okay, but it was not uncommon for vehicles to go up and down that road. Right. The police did go and collect evidence from the scene, but there wasn't a lot. They were able to find the tire tracks from the vehicle to at least try to figure out what kind of truck it was. And they couldn't even figure that out because all the tires were stripped and bare. All they could tell you was the size of the tire, and that's really not that helpful. So not only is he a psychotic killer, he also was an irresponsible driver. (laughs) For real. Man, this guy's got all kinds of character flaws. Yeah, so they all they noted was that bare tires, it was a truck. And he was a young guy that dressed like a cowboy in the Pacific Northwest, which is super... Yeah. A little while later, though, the locals in town told the police to look at a 17-year-old that lived there. His name was Richard Dam. He was a known methamphetamine user, and on the night of the attack, he had been in a heated altercation with his girlfriend, who he had been known to abuse her physically and verbally in the past, and she had kicked him out of the house, and nobody had any clue where he had been that night. They went and spoke to his girlfriend, and she couldn't confirm that they had been fighting that night specifically because they fought so often. She was like, 
I mean, yeah, we probably were fighting, to be honest, but I can't tell you that's what led him to do something like this. I don't know. I had no idea that they even had methamphetamines in the 70s. I thought it was more of an 80s, 90s thing. Yeah, I don't, no clue. You learn something new every day. <laughs> I guess, but I mean, at 17, too. Yeah, that's not a good sign. That's bad. <laughs> that does not bode well for your productivity for the rest of your life. They asked the girlfriend, she said, yeah, he beats me, he's mean, he does have a history of violence with women. I can't tell you for sure, though, that he did this on that specific night, but she doesn't really know. She couldn't rule it out, but she also couldn't say he was definitely gone at that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she was like, I'm not saying he didn't do it, and it does sound like something he would do, I'm gonna be honest with you. And then she also told them that, strangely enough, a week after this had happened, which it was a big deal in this tiny little town. It should be a big deal anywhere. Yeah, but a week after this happened, he had just up and decided to go get all of his tires changed on his truck. And hmm. also, she noticed that a toolbox that he often kept in the bed of his truck was missing and wasn't there anymore. Hmm. They did bring him in and talk to him several times through the next couple decades, but he denied it, and then they had gave him polygraph tests, which aren't reliable to begin with, but they came back as deceitful and later found out that since he was on methamphetamine when he was given the polygraph, it was not usable at all. Maybe he was always on methamphetamine, and maybe the only way they were ever going to be able to test him was under the influence of meth. Well, that's the truth. That's what it was. And so they couldn't use that, and that was the only evidence they had against him. So if you just keep yourself stoned on illegal drugs forever, then they can never give you a polygraph? Sounds good. You also can just say no to the polygraph. <laughs> like, that's an option. Yeah, <laughs> but that just makes you look... Look bad, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, to this day, there still hasn't been any kind of arrest or conviction for this attack. But Richard Dam seems to be the general consensus as to who had attacked them, including from Terry herself. She has investigated it heavily afterwards, and even one of the locals took her into town and said, I'll set up a meeting with him, and you can stand back behind this building and see him in person, but without him seeing you. And she saw him and said, that's the guy who did this to me. Like, oh, I wow. know. But even though she did all this work, and basically the police work for them, in the state of Oregon, there is a statute of limitations for attempted murder. That's ridiculous. Fun fact. So Is in, that still active or was that just yeah. at the time? Nope, still active. So by the time she decided to go back in the 90s and investigate herself in mid-80s, it expired. Her entire case had gotten thrown out. Wow. She thought this whole time they were trying to find him. They gave up a long time ago. Wow. That is absolute bullshit. Fucked up. So that's the reason he hasn't been caught. But everybody in town still thinks he is the guy. So much so, the locals still refer to him as Dick Dam the Hatchet Man. And I, so... I, I hate kitschy little names like that because these people aren't yeah. cute little caricatures. These people are monsters. What he did to those two young women is disgusting and horrific mm -hmm. and they give him a funny little name and obviously he's not been convicted for this crime mm -hmm. but it makes it but it sure joke. sounds like there's a good basis to think that he did yeah. so he just lived his life has he ever been suspected of doing he's, any other terrible crimes he's been in and out of jail his whole life he's still in jail now as far as i could tell because of drug offenses and more brutality towards his female partners so both girls afterwards, incredibly, made complete recoveries. 
100% healed, brain function back to normal. Everybody went right back to Yale as soon as school started back up again. They obviously were in casts for a while and had some follow-up surgeries. But the only thing either of them continue to suffer with is Avra has a little bit of trouble with her vision, but it hasn't proven to be a super big obstacle in her life. So the fact they are... that she survived that... With and able to go back and graduate from Yale after being beaten in the head with an axe Yeah, time? it's... I just... Wow. Because of the amazing life-saving work that the trauma center they had been taken to did and saved Ava's life, her parents made a $3,000 donation to them. It was the St. Charles Medical Center, which in today's money translates to about $15,000. And they put the donation in the name of Bill and Darlene, the two teenagers who were just out on like a lover's lane trip and saved these two girls. I just thought that was sweet. Well, thank you to Teenage Hormones for saving their lives (laughs) because those women would have died. If nobody had found them, they would have just laid there and died. That's a lot of bravery for two teenagers to get up. But let's talk about Terry. Let's talk about Terry Mm -hmm. and what a freaking badass she was. Yeah. This broken body that she was dealing with. And she couldn't breathe very well. Mm-hmm. She had a broken leg. She had a broken collarbone. She had two broken, smashed up arms. And somehow she mobilized herself and got somewhere down the road where she could even find those two teenagers. Yep. What a nightmare. But in 2006, Terry Gent wrote a book called Strange Piece of Paradise. It was a memoir about the attack itself, but also about going back and realizing... Nobody's even been looking for this guy and how that crushed her and how she kind of had to take it into her own hands to get the closure she needed herself. And she also went and interviewed a lot of the people who were involved, as in like the police officers, the teenagers that saved her, who are obviously not teenagers anymore, and then also the nurses who saved her life and never she never got to thank them for that. She wrote about how it was a very profound and healing experience for not only her, but also the people that she went and talked to, because obviously this was a traumatic event in her life, but the people that lived in this town and also never got justice, they knew this person was just walking around their town, and it was a scarring moment for them, so it was their trauma as well as hers. Yeah. And so she kind of tried to connect with them about that. And one experience specifically that she talked about was the nurse that cared for her in her hospital time there. And the nurse mentioned to her that it was most traumatic to her when she first came in and saw Terry's arms and how mangled they were because they weren't just broken in multiple places. It didn't even look possible to save her arms at that point. And she saw how young this girl was. Terry was only 19 years old when this happened. Wow. And to that nurse, it was just one of those moments that stuck out to her and, like, really followed her in her career. So now Terry's back 30 years later talking to her. And she said at the end of the conversation, the nurse just simply asked, can I just see your arm now? And Terry showed it to her and was like, I'm fine. I'm okay. Like, everything is okay. And that's because of you. And But as the nurse, seeing someone in that horrible, horrible, terrible injuries, Mm -hmm. that horrible condition, and then to know that that person, that they got surgeries, that they were able to save those arms, wouldn't you think from that point in your career onward, every patient who comes in, you're like, we're going to find a way to fix this. And you're not going to fix it every single time. But to never give up on your patients, I would think that would have to have been inspirational to that nurse. After she was discharged and Terry went back home to recover, that nurse had no idea what happened to her. Yeah. I just liked that story because in emergency medicine, it is one of those fields 
where you do it, obviously, because you want to see people succeed, but also you see people in their worst, and a lot of times you don't get a follow-up. Well, they survived. I know they survived. I don't know if they were ever the same again. I don't know if they were ever able to get over this. I mean, and so for her to see not only she healed physically, but she is now thriving and doing great. And also at this time, she obviously wrote a book. She later, Terry, went on and moved to Los Angeles, and she now works as a famous screenwriter. Oh, wow. And also, as a personal thing she likes to do, is she's been going back and researching cases. I know the most recent one she's been doing was a South Dakota tribe of indigenous women who were raped and murdered by two white men, and those white men just got away with it. And Terry is very into writing these true crime stories and getting to the bottom of people that just got away with it, and we need to know this happened. Yeah. So she's not only making her Hollywood name out there, she's also into true crime. So if you are interested in that, please check her out, because... Yeah, well, of course, I think her experience is exactly going to set her up for saying, I never got justice, and these women never got justice, and those people never got justice, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to at least get their names out there and tell their story because someone has to. And it's probably for her, just, that could have been me. Puts you in a weird club you don't want to be in, but now you are, and you're going to make sure that you speak for the people who can't, so I really just have so much respect for Terry. And Ava, she's been a little bit less vocal. She's more of a private person. So she hasn't given any interviews or anything like that. But I do know that she went on to medical school after this happened to her, after graduating from Yale, and is now a family medical doctor. Wow. And she's a college professor. And I have to think that she must have taken something away from that experience like Dr. Wong did. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, I know the helplessness. I know the loss of control. I know yeah. the pain and the humiliation and the horror of going through this. So she, that, I'm sure that makes her an amazing doctor. So even though I talked about Terry a little bit more, it's just because she is the one who told us most of the events. I mean, and to be fair, Ava doesn't remember most of the events. How right. could she? Of course. So. Wow. That's the story of the survival of Terry and Avra. Well, they are amazing. They are amazing that they got through that. I yeah. am just blown away by Terry's will to get up and go and live and mm-hmm. survive and save her friend. And how easy would it be to be just terrified of living, to be terrified of the world anymore at 19 years old and this happens to you? Well, and you had mentioned the nurse <laughs> and how... A lot of the time, she wouldn't even ever find out what happened. Mm -hmm. It was really generous of Terry to go back there and sit down with her and say, this is what happened afterwards. Because like you said, a lot of the time, they're never going to hear the ending. And so she got to find out there was a happy ending to that story. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's the kind of results as a nurse That'll keep you going for another 20 years in your career because... That's right. Because you you know that your work made a difference in somebody's life. And that's all any of us can really ask, I think, is that what we do matters. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a terrible story, but a great story. Do you see what I meant, though, at the beginning where I was like, I cannot oh. wrap my head around how anybody survived this situation. Better yet, both of them. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So, guys, I think that's it for this week. We'll see you back next week for episode 63. Yep. Okay. Okay. See you guys. Bye. 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 
She was also born in Snohomish. I'm not making any sense. Sorry. I was about to say, who else was born in Snohomish? <laughs> Susan Schwartz was the queen of hearts in the cult. Damn. Ah, it's kind of a tongue twister. Is that a prime number? No, it's not because you could divide it by 21. I barely know that one is a prime number, Mom. Don't ask me if 63 is one. <laughs> it's not. Okay. 67, I think, is a prime number. We had one screaming bear. Yeah, and then we had a weird perched bear. She was trying to take flight. For anyone that doesn't understand, we call our cat Baby Bear. Because she looks like a baby black bear cub. She does. And she's round like that. And she likes to sit like it, too. <laughs> That's the end of Prime Numbers Are Us. <laughs> prime Numbers B&B. &B. <laughs>